RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain and today I interview Paddy Anson, strength and conditioning coach at the English Institute of Sport. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to, to have Paddy as a guest on the podcast. He's, he's a guy who gave me my first full-time professional role uh, in, in the premiership, in premiership rugby. Uh, and I worked with Paddy for four years. He's a great guy um, and he's got loads of knowledge and uh, I'm sure you'll get a lot out of this if it's just for training to improve your own rugby performance or if you want to be a, a strength and conditioning coach in rugby or, or other sports um, he's got a great um, a great CV and a great track record and, and he's a great guy so have a good listen and uh, let us know your thoughts Hi Paddy, welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast why don't we start by um, you just telling us a little bit about your background uh, and how you got into strength and conditioning and some of the teams and sports you work with Yeah, hi Jamie uh, um, I uh, started really getting into S and C when I when I joined the Marines. So I I did the, the tough the tough training. Obviously you, you know all about marine training. It's it's um it's probably one of the, the toughest forms of of military training and it, it was a direction I wanted to go. I wanted to challenge myself and see if I could handle it, see if I could stick it out and, and I thrived and I really enjoyed it. And I suppose in the first two years after finishing marine training you just had to keep on top of your fitness. You, you, you were no longer pushed by the, by the company commanders. You're no longer pushed by the, the staff sergeants. It was, it was all uh, self-led. So, you know, myself and a, and, and a group of mates would go to the gym every night. So, you know, the, the daily schedule would, would start with uh, either a, a boxing circuit or a, or a troop run, uh, anywhere between six and eight miles for the troop run. Uh, they'd, they'd change around the following day and do a boxing circuit and they'd do back the troop runs. So you'd, you'd get at least three troop runs in a, in a week, which, which kept you on top of your basic fitness. Uh, and, and that was challenging enough just to get you running with um, um, small small breeze blocks that you had to carry in each hand, you know, half-cut breeze blocks. And, and it was a real challenging thing they used to do and then they used to put you into boxing circuits the, the day after, first thing in the morning. So in between those sessions, you'd have your military skills, whether you're doing jungle training, preparing for the jungle or preparing for the desert or Northern Ireland, uh, the Arctic in, in Norway. So whatever that uh, that theme was for that six months leading into it, you, you used to train up for that. Uh, and then, you know, on the back of your weapon skills and your live firing, you'd, you'd then have the evening to yourself. And uh, my mates and I would go to, the, go to the gym. We'd we'd work on general strength. Uh, it was A lot of it was probably what you'd call CrossFit now. It was, it was very much circuit-type training, lots of bodyweight exercises interspersed with a lot of compound uh, and unilateral single-movement dumbbell work. And it, it was just one of those things you did. And then when you went away on tour, whether you're in the jungle or the desert or the Arctic or Nor- Northern Ireland, you, you always had the opportunity to train. And even when I was on ship um, on HMS Nottingham, we were doing boarding parties off, off the coast of Bosnia. And you still do, you know, punch bag work. You do uh, focus mitt work. You do circuits and run around the ship, and then you come back into it. And it, it was a it was a destroyer, uh, and uh, you know, it used, used to have 
some good sessions and, and pushing each other on. And I, and I suppose I got that real thrill from SNC and CrossFit and circuit time training. And this, this would have been back in 93, 94. Uh, and then it got to a point there where, where I had a decision to make. Did I want to become a PTI and specialise as a physical training structure in the Marines? Or did I want to go down the Special Forces route, which was an, an area I always wanted to go down? And I decided to go for the Special Forces route. Uh, but to cut a long story short, I, I contracted um, uh, bowel disorder, ulcerative colitis, while I was uh, going to the SBS. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't let me go to the jungle to do the next part of selection. So I stayed attached to the SBS for another two years. Uh, and then the decision came that, you know, the ulcerative colitis wasn't going to go away. They were never going to let me go into a, uh, an environment where you know I was compromised, uh, especially when you had to carry back a, a patient out, you just couldn't do that in the jungle or or the Arctic. So they made a decision, uh, you know, gave me the opportunity to stay in the Marines and do a job I didn't really want to. You know, I could have been there for another 22 years, but I decided to to take a medical pension, a, a war pension, and uh, and leave the Marines. And and that's when I studied at Exeter University. I did three years there in a sports science and sports and exercise science degree. At the same time, I, I was working with Exeter Chiefs. They were in National One at the time, uh, which was the championship equivalent now. And and I suppose from from there, the, the, this passion for strength and conditioning and, and really getting into the heavy gist of proper strength conditioning rather than the, the CrossFit and the, the circuits I've been used to in the Marines. I, I, I challenged my theory, I challenged my coaching, I did additional courses, uh, I did a master's at UIC in coaching science, and, and I just be, became more an all-round strength conditioning coach. And that's that's the point that I wanted to, you know, challenge myself, maybe look to become a head strength conditioning coach and see where, where my career path went. So. I applied for a job at Hartbury College from my time at Exeter Chiefs. Hartbury College was just a, a farming college at the time. Uh, Malcolm Wharton headed up. There was Sean Holly and Andrew Stanley who were were both uh, dealing with Hartbury College and with Gloucester Academy. And the three of us worked really well together. I did. I headed up the strength conditioning. Sean headed up the, the attack, and, and Andrew Stanley headed up the, the force coaching and some of the defence. And we went in that four-year period to to then be challenging Loughborough in, in the final of Twickenham in, in the Booster final. Uh, it's called Bucks now, it's the Booster at the time. Uh, and it was a a good period really because working with academy level players in Gloucester Academy and working with academy level players at Hartley College in a, in a multitude of sports, but primarily rugby, uh, gave you a real insight in, into, okay, what's the next level now? How do I challenge myself? Uh, an opportunity came to go to, to Worcester Warriors. Uh, so I left Hartbury College and, and went to Worcester, uh, Worcester Warriors as, as an assistant strength conditioning coach. Learned a great deal in, in that year there. John Brain uh, is unfortunately passed away now. He was yeah, the director of the time, along with a, a guy called Anthony Eddy, who's, who's now in Ireland, but he was uh, obviously from Australia and did a bit of sudden work in Australia and is now working in, in, uh, in Ireland. And we, we had a great coaching group at Worcester. It was it gave me a real insight into the Premiership. So I've seen academy level uh, Premiership rugby with with Gloucester and, and Hartbury College. But going to Worcester Warriors really opened my eyes into the demands of, of working week in week out in a, in a Premiership club run by a by a good group of people. 
uh, run by a good, diligent, hard-working director of rugby and, and his assistant coaches. And, and Phil Richards was a, the, uh, the head strength conditioning coach at the time. Uh, I learned a lot from him. And when a, a job came up to go to Exeter as head of strength conditioning, I, I jumped at the opportunity because it was the club I'd started at. Uh, Pete Druitt and Rob Baxter were, were taking over there, and it was some exciting times. They were moving from the county ground. They were moving into Sandy Park. And I, I, I suppose I wanted to, to challenge myself and uh, again and see what, what I could do as a head of strength conditioning in, in the Premier or ho- and hopefully to get into the Premiership. So I went to Exeter Chiefs. I was there for six years. We were four years in the Championship and then uh, two years in the Premiership. And, and, and getting into the Premiership was a fantastic part of my career, probably a highlight of my career. And working with Robert Baxter and Alley for Tony Rowe and... Ricky Pello, Mark Twiggs, Dave Sylvester, all these people that helped us to, to get into the, into the Premiership and, and, and notwithstanding fantastic players and, and a fantastic club, fantastic fans. It, it was a, a really good part of my of my um, my career and my part of my development. <clears throat> John Brain uh, took over at, uh, at Gloucester with Brian Redpath and Carl Hogg and they interviewed me for a, for a role at Gloucester and an extra that offered me a three-year deal to stay at Exeter. And, and yet again, I wanted to, to see how I could cope back at the, the club that I'd, that I'd been involved with Academy. And uh, I was there for four years and uh, finished at the end of last season and went straight to the high, Elite High Performance Centre at Shmadi, uh in September this year. And I'm, I'm now the... The, uh, the technical lead at Bishop Abbey, it's, it's a great environment. Uh, some fantastic SNC coaches, fantastic medical, and it's a, it's a very different different role now where it's it's preparing for the, the Tokyo cycle now. The, the athletes are striving for gold medal, uh, silver or bronze, they, they just want to medal. That's, that's their, that would be their career achievement, and, and if you can get the gold with, with these athletes, then, then all the best. Uh, but, that's their real challenge, their real focus, and it's very different from professional rugby, where where the athletes I work with uh, potentially had a had a different a different mindset, which was you know to to stake a living in a professional sport that was very demanding, clean based, and you had to probably try and earn as much as you could in a short space of time. It's it's different now. It's it's at Bishop Abbey where I'm working with uh, GB rugby, GB hockey. Uh, Olympic para canoeing, and uh, it's it's a very very different environment. But that's pretty much in a nutshell where 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 my career's taken me so far. Yeah, that's quite a CV, Pad. Um, and and also I think it's worth pointing out that when you were at Hartbury, you were one of the first S and Cs in a university at the time, weren't you? I was the only S and C. Yeah, so it's a Hartbury College. The Hartbury we know now. Uh, I'd like to think was founded on the work that certainly Malcolm Wharton, he, he drove it as a, as a principal. He had these huge ideas and he wanted he wanted the SNC and the coaching group to ensure that a group of farmers, they, they literally were a group of farmers at the time, uh, with a few guys who were doing a rugby studies course and a few guys who were doing uh, a, a business studies course who, who came together, trained on a pitch that's nowhere near this level of pitch there's now there was no no real sports or no real gym facility that, that you can see now it, it was 
pretty much a spit and sawdust environment, and, and we had to get on with it. And, and in that four four year period, the the college went from from strength to strength. I started uh, using the the students as in, as interns. Stu Pickering, who who obviously is a is a technical and um, even involved in technical performance with the English Institute of Sport. Now he was one of my assistants at the time, and and his pathway took him to to Worcester Warriors and the academy, and then to the first team, and then to head up the S and C department. So he's he's had a great career forged from being an intern with with myself at, at Hartley College, and and it, it, the, the the college has gone from strength to strength. Malcolm Wharton at the time said, "I I want to see Hartley College in the championship in ten years' time." And to be fair, they're not far off. And I'd look at their their track record and where they are standing this year. It, it, it would be a, a very proud moment if they get to the championship because I can look back at 2001, 2002, 2003, and 2004 as, as special years that forged where, where it is now. They gave it the foundation and the, and the groundwork to, to be an outstanding college. Yeah, definitely. I think they're still unbeaten. And, and every win, they've had a bonus point, haven't they? So it's, yeah, uh, they'll yeah. take some stopping. But why don't we just take a little bit of a look back at, obviously, you know, being involved in the Marines, it's a massive part of your life. Um, but how do you think uh, that's affected you as a coach or your coaching style? What have you taken from your time in the Marines that you use today? Well, I, I was hard working in the Marines anyway. I, I always wanted to be the the best specialist in my in my troop in my unit. I always wanted to, whether it was point man in Northern Ireland or whether it was the person doing the map reading in Norway, the person who was who's given given control and leadership responsibilities. And and also to be the best soldier I could be, and that was always my drive. And so obviously the that next step, if you if you're in the Royal Marines and you're already seen as a pretty much an, an elite, uh, an elite unit of men, to then go for special forces, whether it's the SAS or the SPS, is it becomes the pinnacle of, of your career. And that was a huge knockback for me. I actually did my dissertation in university on on you know the you know how that actually affected me as, a, as an individual and how, how it gave me that determination and drive to try and be even more successful than, that, than I could have been in the Marines because when, when you take a knockback like that, when, when, you're, when you're flying through selection, you're enjoying it, you're, you're doing all the, all the things that you've, you've worked hard to achieve in, in, your, in your career, you know that you're, you're a few months away from, from being badged as a special force operative. Uh, to then have that knockback gave me a an even more hard-working mindset and I you know the choice was there do I stay in in the Marines and, and do a job I, I I didn't necessarily want to do uh, you know given I had loads of great mates and, and friends there and people that I respected or do I challenge myself and, and move forward in a, in a different path so it certainly has affected my coaching career it's made me very diligent it's made me very hard-working I think I've got those leadership qualities that were eat on me in the Marines, uh, but also lead by example. And I'd like to think that any any athletes, whether it's professional now at, uh, at the Elite Performance Centre in Bishop Abbey or whether it's rugby players in the past, would all, you know, think that I was a, a person who was prepared to put myself in a dark place just just as they were, uh, and not and not look to just programme for them and and not know what I was programming. It's a big part is to make sure that I know exactly what I'm programming, that what I'm coaching the the, the players or the athletes to achieve is, is possible and 
in a nutshell, I suppose it's that it's, it's that resilience, that ability to get back and, and do all over again. That's been my my real driver. Uh, and I've had to restart now. You know, I've gone from from being a head of strength and conditioning in uh, in rugby union, taking a huge pay cut to go into the elite form centre here at Bishop Abbey. Uh, but there's a different stimulus. There's a there's a different drive that you're working with with different individuals, different coaches, different backroom staff, and and it, it's challenging me in, in, in a whole load of other ways uh, to, again, hopefully put me on that pathway to be becoming a better coach in the future. Yeah, and I, I can certainly um, vouch for you that you, you practice what you preach, having seen you run around the track um, with the boys when they're testing on the 800 and 1500, and I, I've actually seen you beat the boys, so uh, I can attest to that. Um, so, but, but obviously don't put me in, don't, don't give me a squat competition or a Olympic lifting competition. No, no, I'll, I'll struggle. wouldn't dream of it. <laughs> Um, so moving on from after the Marines, your, your time at Exeter, um, so, sorry, your second time at Exeter um, when you got your first head position there, um, you you began with them in the championship and obviously you were there for six years and brought them up into the into the premiership uh, and so solidified them in the premiership. When you, when you started there, what, what sort of things did you see that you needed to improve, whether it's facilities or just, you know, physically in the the athletes you had there, what did you see you needed to do to make them sort of premiership contenders? Yeah, the, the big attraction to go back to Exeter was I, I knew the club, I, I still knew some of the players and and I, I had a, a fantastic rapport with, with Rob Baxter when, when he was the captain of, the, of, of Exeter Chiefs back in 1999-2000 when I was working with him and I, and I was coaching him, I just kind of arranged. He was a great leader. He led by example. He put himself into a dark place with the players. He worked hard himself and Gary Willis and Richie Baxter. You know, these, these, these individuals that had a huge ambition for Exeter Chiefs at the time. So, so to go back to Exeter Chiefs, really from a premiership club like Worcester Warriors, it, it, wasn't, it, was, a, it was a bit of a no-brainer. I, I, I knew that I could be challenged. I knew that there was a, a mindset from Tony Rowe and, and the board to, to get into the Premiership. And Pete Druitt and, and Rob Baxter at the time sold me a, a, you know, a, good, a good opportunity to, to go and see what I could do and, and help deliver at, at Exeter Chiefs. And, and because I knew the county ground, I, I knew where the players had trained before. They, they trained in, in dog kennels. So when I was training, they, they worked out at, at a gym that was a dog kennel. The, the track was a mud track that they used for either dog greyhound racing or they used for the motocross uh, racing with, with motorbikes and, and and in the middle of all that was this mud mud bath of a pitch uh, with a with a one stand on the outside which that, that was essentially the counter ground it was a fantastic a fantastic environment a fantastic old ground but I, I suppose I knew the people there and, and it was a it wasn't it wasn't a hard sell to go back and and I went back to Exeter Chiefs at the time that they were building Sandy Park and knocking down the counter ground so we were housing offices just around the corner and we'd go into Sandy Park on a, on a regular basis just to make sure that the, the facility was being done to the standards we wanted and the pitch was being done to the standards we wanted and, and I was training the, the players out of fitness first and, and another local gym nearby I was taking to the track, taking to the hills I was doing all the things I would do with a, with a professional uh, uh, a fully professional club like like Worcester Warriors of Lost Rugby, uh, given that the, the players, a lot of them, were still working and they'd train hard in the morning, train hard in the evening. Uh, 
and I, I suppose I was part of that transition then into right, let's see, see if we can make Exeter Chiefs a, a full-time unit. And and towards the end of that first season at, at Exeter Chiefs, we Peter managed to get the majority of players in full-time contracts. A few of the players left, and and as as with any professional club, there's a there's a turnover of starting players. Uh, but when I first went in, I, I just knew that the, the team needed to change, that the, the mindset of the, the team needed to change. Where Exeter's strength was, was always set piece. They, they had a fantastic mindset around set piece. Rob Baxter had, had driven that set piece for 10 or 15 years as a player, and he was going to drive that set piece as, as a coach. And the problem was at, at the counter ground was that was pretty much all you could do. I, I know that Exeter beat a, a lot of fantastic teams just by having that dominant set piece and you know having and it was Tony App at the time dropping goals from from anywhere or or kicking his his penalties because it, it literally was all he could do on a on a, on a mud, mud bath which was the counter ground. So going to Sandy Park on a on a fantastic surface. A, a flat surface that wasn't worth watered down every Wednesday to make sure that it was a quagmire for the weekend. It, it was a it was a brilliant surface to train on and play on. And I, I knew that the team would have to change. That after that would have to become a faster team. Have to become a, a, a running based team. It would have to be a team that that worked on speed off the floor and worked around set piece. Still kept that set piece uh, uh, parity with other teams and and kept as a strength, but but worked on a on a wide game from that and I was reading a book by Herm Edwards at the time who was one of the New York Jets coaches a, a, a great sort of a, a great guy really and, and one of the quotes he, he came up with was what goes in the dark comes to the light and, and I hit the players with that pretty much in the, in the first week I was at Exeter Chiefs uh, and that group of the players obviously were not the same group of players that went into the friendship but I pretty much kept that theme with, with these guys of what, what goes in the dark comes to light. What you do away from training, where I can't see you, is going to come to the light on a, on a match day. So if I know that when you finish, you know, you might be eating all the right things in front of me at work, you might be snacking on the right things at work, you might be filling in the right nutrition diary in front of me at work when we have our individual reviews, when we're in the gym, I can see you lifting well. I can see you training appropriately and training well on the pitch and doing the additional extras and the, the additional skills needed to be a professional player. But I want to know what you're doing away from that. And the only way I can see that is if you have a stormer week in, week out on the pitch and you have that consistency, consistency about you where I know that you've done the, the, the right building blocks in your working week to make sure you can, A, justify being a professional player, but B, hit that target of, of one day being a part of a group that got extra chiefs into the premiership. Because let's face it, whatever players played in, in the history of the club has been a part of a club's success or a part of that club's downfall. So it was trying to get that that mindset away from dog kennels and uh, this sweaty, spit and sawdust gym into a, a fantastic elite gym at Sandy Park where I had a pretty much a free reign of budget to, to develop that. To have, instead of a, a dog kennel or a dog track and a and a motocross track, it was an indoor track in, inside the, the facility at, at Sandy Park. Instead of a mud bath, the pitch had a desert pitch. So I, I'd, I wanted the players to be grounded. I challenged them week in, week out, and said to them, listen, when you play Coventry, when you play Birmingham Solihull, when you play Rotherham, they're fantastic clubs in their own rights, but they want the facilities you've got. They want to be full-time professional athletes. They want everything you have. So don't take what you've got for granted, and let's make sure that we 
we show that we can be a professional team and that we show that we can be a team that aspires to finish the Premiership one day. Yeah, I, I really like what you said about obviously consistency is, is so underrated in, in terms of you know performance and physical performance. And, and also, it's it's a good message for any players out there that it's it's not just good enough to, you know, lift lift weights a few few hours a week and and train hard in rugby training. It's it's those other decisions you make in and around that time that that really add up in the long run. So some really yeah, good absolutely. really good messages there. Now let, let's move on to kind of try and figure out a bit about your SNC philosophy. Um, so what are kind of the main pillars of your SNC philosophy? The first one, and this is one I've I've held ever since since leaving the Marines, is is to know my athletes, know the people I work with, know their strengths, know their weaknesses, and and to program accordingly. It's it, it would be like a, a coach going into a new club if, if you've got a, a group of players who are big and strong and powerful and and have this fantastic mindset around set piece and scrum and, and line out and drive more, then, then don't take it that way from them. Don't turn around and say, right, we're going to have a quick fancy down wide game. Let's work for our strengths and, and see how we can improve our strengths and then any weaknesses we have, work on those as well. But always go to your strengths first and make sure that you can build on those pillars before you start looking at, uh, at other areas. So, so fundamentally, I like my athletes to lift explosively when appropriate. I like them to lift heavy when appropriate. Uh, I'm big into their compound movements, Olympic lifts, squat variations, and making sure that that is part of the program every single week. It has to be because if you go away from that and then come back into it you know, a few weeks down the line, they're going to have soreness, they're going to have doms, they're going to have a different mindset. They've got a, a game to play that weekend. So you can't afford to be messing around with a program just because you want to... Uh, either plead other people, plead the players, or, or plead other staff. You have to look at what the players need and not what they want. So that was a, a, a big part of it. Uh, now, whilst my whole career I've been trying to create big, robust, resilient athletes, this, this move now has actually challenged my, my whole coaching philosophy. I'm, I'm, I'm now at a point in, in my career where I used to think that my... My gym was a reflection of me, so chains, big heavy chains, big power racks, squat racks, sleds, a sprint track, uh, plyometric boxes, uh, big heavy dumbbells. That that sort of was a reflection of my program. It was a reflection of me as a person. It was a reflection of what I wanted the players to achieve to be as big and strong and powerful as they could be. Because you know, in, in collision-based sports, as far as I'm concerned, that that has to be the the, the basic foundation, and then you can you can produce other elements of strength conditioning from that. Uh, but this is challenging now because I'm in a situation now where my gym has changed from from that to bands and kettlebells and lighter dumbbells and uh, Swiss balls. It, it, I've had to completely adapt my whole coaching philosophy, and, and that's been a real challenge. Uh, I, I worked with uh, just for this podcast. I was working with an Olympic uh, para, Paralympian canoeist uh, and she, she's got transverse myelitis so she won gold medal at Rio she's an absolute amazing athlete and I can't speak high enough of her but it's made me really humble now in the last few weeks working with her how I've, uh, I'm having to lift her off a, off a wheelchair onto a piece of equipment I'm having to challenge what I'm doing with her 
her training wise to make sure that she's getting that oblique strength and transverse abdominal strength and, and general core strength and working rotating through through the whole core and the whole trunk firing the laps to make sure she's got those as big as strong laps as she had to power herself down the down the lake in her, in her k1 and and that has really really uh, challenged me because it, it, it definitely it, it's definitely a very humbling ex- experience and it, it it's very different working with with female athletes as well. You you have to challenge how you approach them, how you talk to them. You have to challenge how you converse with them. You have to challenge how you how you program for them because it, it's it's a, it's a they're they're very different and and in in a way they actually, they're actually more challenging of you. They they question you more. They they want to know well, why we're doing that. So if I give a a player that I've been used to across the rugby or executives a program, they just go away and do it. Whereas they'll say to you, well, why am I doing this? And then there's another another um, Paralympian canoeist uh, who's actually, a, she's gold medal at uh, Rio as well. And uh, I'm working with her and she's a physio. So so every exercise I, I prescribe and every exercise I'm talking about or discussing with her, well, she'll go into the intricacies of her, of her, her actual disability and say, well, well, why am I doing this? If, if I can't do this, why are you asking me to do that? Why? And, and to go from my programming and sit in the gym and actually what you do, what, what computer says on a piece of paper actually isn't what, what the reality is on the gym floor. So uh, I am certainly in a, I've been taken out of my comfort zone and, and it, it, it has actually made me a, a better coach without doubt this last uh, three months at Bishnelli. Yeah, I think you, you just highlighted the importance of, like, firstly, having a really good needs analysis of, of who you're working with, the sport, etc., um, but also be, being able to be adaptable and communicate with the, with the athlete as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Now, I, 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 wouldn't say, I wouldn't say you're renowned for this, but I know when you first came to Gloucester, some of the players were a bit shocked at some of the swimming sessions we did. Um, and um, a lot of people will, you know, recognise swimming as being used a lot in recovery as a recovery modality in rugby but you used it to improve fitness as well won't you talk a bit about that and the, the benefits of swimming yeah I mean, first and foremost swimming is a, an excellent form of recovery so <clears throat> within the program yes there was swimming first in the morning three days a week in, in pre-season but i scheduled those three days to to complement the program so yes they're working hard whether doing water polo or swimming or whether doing underwater hockey the ox push there was there was a reason for my madness and i came in and i think there are a few players discussing with their agents who who was this person that's that's come from extra chiefs ever before they met me and and they were quite worried about what i was going to be doing as part of programming but there there was a method to to my programming there it was to make sure that those swimming sessions were on the back of a tough day so you know monday was 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 a was always a tough day so you know, being in, in the pool first thing on a Monday morning at the Lido in Cheltenham, where you had a 50-meter pool, <clears throat> I had also had experts who were Cheltenham were the, the the current UK champions at, at uh, not just playing water polo but delivering water polo sessions. So you had a, a very good, tough, competitive environment playing water polo. You had myself at the other end of the pool doing octopus with with the players where they where they're pushing a puck under water, and 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 again there's that competitive element. Uh, so you're getting that breathing efficiency, that economy, lung, lung economy, and then you had you in the middle uh, running the, the the players who were again just doing not mindless but really hard work in terms of wicks or picking up wicks from the bottom, bringing them back, and then 
and then swimming a, a, a bit further and and then doing relays and and this working this as a as a round robin challenges the players massively. You know, there's there's been some studies where you look at lactate production in the pool, especially with a with a big big player who's very muscle bound. They they struggle to to maintain high efforts uh, because of the, the lactate buildup. And you, you know what you can get in a, in a pool in a 20 or 30 minute session will probably take you an hour and hour and, hour and a quarter within a within a gym circuit to achieve. Now, obviously, the gym circuit is more specific to the, to the game, but sometimes there's a there's a there's a need to unload the athletes uh, and prepare them for a for a heavy lifting session in the afternoon. But they've got time to recover in the morning. They'll eat well at the club. They'll do a, a, a skill session or a or a speed session in in between the two. And then they're they're ready to lift in the afternoon or, or vice versa. So the, the the programming was was there for a reason. A A to be really competitive and to, to have a competitive environment outside of rugby. B to see who was prepared to to go to a dark place you know, when when they're out of their comfort zone. Uh, and and C because there was this lactate production which which players not all players but a lot of players especially those who who hadn't experienced swimming. And a lot of the Tongans and the Fijians would really struggle with with that environment. And it's good to put them, take them out of their comfort zone, make them you know, become uncomfortable with, sorry, become comfortable with being uncomfortable all the time. Uh, and that's that's a big part of pre-season. Uh, and then in season, it, that didn't stop. So I I take the the rehab players twice or three times a week. Uh, and I'm still doing the same now at Bishop Abbey with the, with the rehab players. Although it's not in a, in a pool, we've got a, an endless pool. So I take them for swimming or or aqua jogging uh, sessions, which again put them in a dark place, see how they see how they thrive or survive, and uh, work work them work them hard. And those rehab sessions with the player that lost them meant that no one could ever hide. There was there wasn't a hiding place. If you had three or four players <coughs> doing a constructive swimming session in the morning. For half an hour at quarter seven, that would set them up for the day. Then they they had, they had time then to see the physio and then get on with their rehab rehab exercises or go into the gym with yourself uh, and then have a, a productive afternoon. And, and I think building that into the the program helps with recovery, helps with uh, rehabilitation. And and then when the team needs to recover, I would then take the the team as a whole, the forwards and back split into the into the pool as well, and, and, and make sure that they were recovering properly, doing the right stretches, using you know using that hydrotherapy element, which probably is apart from sleep. I, I would suggest that hydrotherapy is is the the foremost uh, uh, form of recovery to, to use to utilize. Yeah, and what what was interesting as well is like the guys who were in that rehab group, even once they kind of got fit again and we're back in the team a lot of them would still continue to go to the swimming because they you know they felt the benefits from it so that that's a real that's, that's the thing yeah 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 absolutely and, and it, it it brought around it brought, brought this teamship about with with the rehab group and and it, they they were all in it together whether they're in the gym or in the pool they're in it together and and they almost didn't want to let it go they wanted to then continue and and they were Strictly rehab sessions where sometimes I had ten or twelve players when actually only two or three of them were injured. Yeah. Uh, so again, that was challenging as, as to how how do I change the program around to, to, to accommodate these other players because they wanted to be there, but make sure as well that that, uh, that they're ready for the rugby session and and the the gym and the speed work later on. Yeah, but but also like you say, you know, we're dealing with big 
big guys um, and they do a lot of running in the rugby training, but you still need to increase their fitness, but not to the point where they get injured through, you know, overtraining from the running. So if it's a really good yeah, fitness exactly. stimulus, then get them in the pool and, and get them swimming and improve their cardiovascular system. Right. Um, this is a question we, we ask all the guests on the podcast. Uh, what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to S&C? Uh, that's a tough one, Jamie. I think there's, I think there's a lot of mistakes that the players make outside of training. I think there's a lot of mistakes that players make, possibly even within training, when when we're not watching you or when we're not around. But if I was to really think long and hard about this, the what the biggest mistake I think uh, it probably is a mistake is probably their mindset or, or the way they are is is those players that train like Tarzan and play like James. Uh, I can't. I can never understand how a player can clean and jerk 125 kilograms and then play like a pussycat on the pitch. It, it, I can't get my head around that. And and there's a mentality and there's a fragility, I think, across sport where players and athletes just don't have the mental toughness, and the mental resilience to compete at the highest level. So that that's a big bugbear of mine is, is to see players lift and shift huge weights. And then to see players lift, lift and shift huge weights explosively and dynamically, you think, well, I've just seen you you pull that that bar from a from a block on on a tender. I, I could never even hit that figure. Yet I've just seen you do that. Why are you not cutting someone in half on the pitch? And uh, it is a combat sport. It's a confrontation sport. Players get injured, but I think that the players. Who, who go into the game with, with the wrong mindset are probably the ones that get injured the most. Uh, but ultimately, the, those same people, the, people in, in professional sport, uh, livelihoods are at stake. So, so if I'm training someone hard in the gym and, and they're working hard in the gym, I can never understand why they just just can't put it in on the pitch. Uh, and I, that probably comes a bit from my military training. It, it, you work with with your peers to be the best you can be, whether that's a soldier or whether it's a signaler or whether it's a sniper or whether it's a, someone who does the jumps, the parachute jumps. You, you want, within that unit, to have people around you who you know you'd want to go to war with. And and uh, it frustrates me when there's players being paid a lot of money who just don't do the job on the pitch come match day. Yeah, and do you think that's also a bit to do with kind of like transfer of training they don't they don't feel the benefit um or they'll get stronger and and more powerful in the gym but then they don't try and transfer it into the rugby training they do and then come the game yeah you know, it's lost yeah I, I don't think that and it's not just rugby players i think footballers probably have the same same problem you you have players who paid a lot of money to do a job and and it's very frustrating to see them in, in an environment where, where they're doing all the right things uh, in front of you. But it's that what I said to you before about what goes in the dark comes to light. What are they doing outside of that? Are they doing additional bodybuilding sessions when actually they should be out practicing their skills? Are they doing additional uh, I don't know, sessions that, that uh, of vanity sessions rather than being in watching the computer and and and, and analysing the opposition and like what is my counterpart doing? What, why is my counterpart so good? Why is my counterpart so consistent? And I suppose the other thing as well is is 
train the mind as well. I, I can't stand there and train the mind. A, I don't know how to train the mind, but, but B, it's something that, that has to come from within. There has to be a desire and a desperation from within each athlete or player within a team sport and individual sport to, to be the best they can be. And if, if they're not prepared to do those bits, uh, those building blocks outside of training, then they will be that person who can who can lift well, but either has no aggression or has no mental resilience or hasn't spent enough time studying your position. So I think there's a lot more to the, to the game that, that, that we work on in, in the gym and within the, within the bounds of, of the performance environment. Yeah, definitely. I think we carry on. Yeah, yeah. We 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 just we don't get the same buy-in from from players to do those little things really well. Um, that that would be probably a, a big part of it. Yeah, definitely. Now, last question because I, I I know you're busy, uh, busy, so I'm conscious of time. Um, what would be your advice to an, an upcoming strength coach? Uh. I, I've had I've I've ha, ha, worked with a lot of interns in in the last eighteen years of, of my my career in, in professional rugby, and I'm working with interns uh, currently uh, at the high performance centre here at Bisham. My biggest advice would be to to do the little things really well, do the basics really well. There's there's a good there's a good uh, a good YouTube video uh, I'd recommend to to any of your listeners who whether they're rugby or other sports or or SNC or or want up-and-coming SNC coaches is is to read this this thing about a he's a guy in the U.S. Navy SEAL. Um, he's an admiral in the, in the Navy SEALs, and he was part of the of the crew that took down Bin Bin Laden. And his name is William McCraven. If you go onto YouTube and and look up that, uh, it just says "Make Your Bed." And what he t- talks about is that first task of the day. What's that first task of the day for for any any person in life? whether it's military or civilian, and that's and that to make your bed. And that's the first task of the day. If you don't do that, then you've already failed at that first task. And and I have talked to this with young SNC coaches, you know, since I've seen this, and, and a few of the players have seen this as well. And in fact, it was one of the players, Willie Hines, who introduced me to, to, to it on YouTube. So I use it a lot now because you have to do that first task of the day because then that sets you up. You, you then turn up to work on time and you turn up to work looking like you're ready because you made your bed, you then probably had a shave or you've had a shower and you've washed and you've put in the oven and you come in and you come into work looking like you haven't just got out of bed. Uh, you turn up in the right kit. You you enter the gym as a, as a young aspiring SNC coach and intern and you, you are... You are basically and be the product of what the athletes want to be or the or the players. So if you turn up and look like a slob, then they'll be a, they'll become a slob. So I think you can talk a lot of interns and young S and C and aspiring S and C coaches to to work at you know different strength attributes or look at look at the lifting or look at the squat variables or look at uh, GPS technology. But but actually that that means Jack when when it when actually you you should be a someone that leads by example so if you turn up into the gym and drink a cup of coffee the players will turn up into the gym thinking they can come in and drink a cup of coffee it doesn't matter how young you are and then they'll turn to me and say well we just saw Jack turning up with a, with a cup of coffee so why should we do it or we saw Jack turn up late so why should we do it or we didn't see Jack turn up the gym afterwards so why shouldn't we and you, you make yourself employable by being diligent you, if you do your job no matter how mean it is to the best of your ability 
think people recognise it, uh, and and I will recognise it. And if I have to go around as, an, as a head of strength conditioning and care after people that I work with, or I have to go around and, and micromanage them and make sure they're doing their job properly, then I'm not getting the best out of them, and they're never going to be a member of staff that I want to have. So that would be the best thing I would say. You, you can come in as a young intern and give you all this this uh, great technology and talk about your, your Excel spreadsheets and talk about the work you've done and your project and your dissertation at university. And actually, you might have more, more knowledge than me now. I'm, I'm 18 years in the game. I'm probably lacking some of the knowledge that some of these, these young scientific coaches have. It, it's, it's excellent what they're, what they're studying now and what they're doing and what they're being made to learn. But... The reality is, if, if they can't do the basics well, if you can't do the little things, then I can't trust them to do the big things. And I think that, in a nutshell, would be my my advice to youngsters coming into the, the profession. Yeah, great advice, Paddy. Thanks for that. Um, so, lastly, Paddy, like I know, I know you normally ask um, where we can find out more about you, but I know you're you're a bit of a social media recluse. Um, so, kind of, what what's the future hold for you? Obviously, at the EIS now, um, is that a is that your plan to, to go to Tokyo? Well, you, I think you, you know me long enough, Jamie. Um, the, there's, there's potential for that to happen. And, and if I'm put in that position where I'm offered the full Tokyo cycle you know, for the next four years, and, and I take that job, you know, it, it's potentially there now already for me. And uh, I'm not sure, you know, where where those contract negotiations are going to be in the next couple of months, I'm, I'm sure I find out. But the, the, the person I am is once I sign that contract, I'll I'll be at uh, the performance centre of Bishnabi for that full four years because I owe it to the athletes, I owe it to the people I work with. Uh, in a short space of time, I'm already um, you know part of the technical technical leadership within the the, uh, the establishment here. So. If, if I start letting people down and, and then walk for another job because it's better paid or because whatever we want to do, then then I'm not the principal person with the integrity that I keep um, telling people I have, which which I know I have and I, and I know I'll always have. So if if that comes comes good, then that's the that's the role I'm going to pursue for the next four years. If in the meantime uh, something else comes up, uh, then then I'll, I'll look in, into that as well. But what this job has made me realise is that. It, if, if you go around chasing financial packages or chasing contracts or chasing money, you'll never really have that that success that you desire. Because I believe I've been challenged more in the last since, since September. I've been challenged more here than I have in, in rugby in the last 18 years, and that the reason for that is because I'm working with with athletes who they're not able-bodied for starters. You know, some some of these Paralympians. They, they, as I said earlier, they, it brings a lot of humility to, to what you do. Uh, and then working with, with elite hockey players, their only goal is to, to get gold at, uh, at the, the next Olympics. And yet their peers in rugby or football are earning the same amount in one day in an international game, and they're earning the whole the whole uh, year. So this isn't a this is this isn't a what you call it, a mecca I'm going on to try and, and, and change the the world strength conditioning because everyone's different. But, but for me, it is to, to A, honour the contracts I'm given or, or have the opportunity to do, and B, be the best I can be. And, and if that means taking a different pathway, then I'll, then I'll do that. 
that's great Paddy and that's probably a, a very good lesson for, for upcoming S&C coaches as well Paddy um, thanks it's been great to talk to you uh, thanks for sort of sharing your time I know how busy you are down at Bisham um, and, and all the best in the future thanks Jamie pleasure Thank you, Paddy, for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, I've visited Paddy down at Bisham Abbey, and I know he's incredibly busy. So to get that time, um, 30 or 40 minutes to talk to him, you know, there's loads of information in there. Um, it's great to hear about his philosophy and, um, you know, career advice. And uh, could have gone on for, for longer, but um, really appreciate managing to fit us into his busy schedule. Uh, in the meantime, guys, check out rugbyrenegade.com. More um, ebooks coming up, more uh, articles and of course more podcasts and if you really want to stay in touch with the podcast uh, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes uh, and give us a 5 star review. Until next time Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade Podcast For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information check us out at RugbyRenegade.com Rugby Renegade Building Machines